I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Good evening, and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We are somewhat thin tonight. Many are away for the holiday weekend, and we pray that God will bless them with a safe return to us. But nonetheless, we're grateful to have the opportunity to be together, to worship God in spirit and in truth, to sing these songs of praises, to approach His throne in prayer, and also to read from, to read from His Holy Word. Tonight we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to be talking about the power of Christ. When you look at the book of Revelation, one of the things that stands out is the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. Someone has said that when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, the conclusion is this, thank God we won. Well, when you look at Revelation chapter 1, there are some statements that are made by John that help us to see more clearly the power of Christ. And I want you to think with me for just a few moments about the importance of the people in the first century coming to understand and appreciate the power of Christ. And I really believe that those of us who live today that we too, in the midst of trials and tribulations and difficulties and persecutions, that we need to see the power of Christ. And so with that in mind, there are three things I want to call your attention to in our study. The first has to do with the fact that we have been purchased by Christ. Look, if you would, at verse 5 in Revelation chapter 1. John speaks of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And then he says, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. When we look at the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the one who has purchased us from sin, John brings out the point that Jesus Christ is the sovereign one. We see the sovereignty of Christ. And then also we see the sacrifice of Christ. But first of all, think about the sovereignty of Christ and why it's so important for John to set the stage that Jesus is sovereign. When we talk about somebody being sovereign, we're, we're talking about the fact that they are overall. Jesus Christ is overall. When John wrote the book of Revelation, the time was about A.D. 95 or 96, there was a man on the throne in Rome by the name of Domitian. Domitian was a bloodthirsty Caesar or bloodthirsty emperor. He had the idea that he was God. As a matter of fact, historians state that he wanted people to address him as Lord and God. 
And so when John writes, John writes to first century Christians, many of whom were undergoing a siege of persecution. As a matter of fact, John speaks of the fact that he is a brother or he was a brother and companion in tribulation to the people that he was writing to. He had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And so John is writing and he is setting the stage and letting, letting these people in the first century know that yes, Domitian may be on the throne and he may be the one who rules imperial Rome, but I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Over in chapter six, we talk about the persecution that, that was a part of first century living. And Domitian was a bloodthirsty emperor, as I said a moment ago. In Revelation chapter 6 at verse 9, John speaks of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony that they held. Here were people that were suffering martyrdom for the cause of Christ. They were literally being put to death for their faith and fidelity in Jesus. Over in chapter 2 at verse 10. Jesus would say, be faithful until death. And the idea is, be faithful even in the face of death itself. You stay close to God, you stay faithful to God, and ultimately, he will bestow on you the crown of life. So, John writes, and he underscores the sovereignty of Christ. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul wrote of Jesus as the only potentate, that is the sovereign one. And he said, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, Daniel said it like this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. He said, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. The psalmist said in Psalm 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns. And so John is, is affirming to these New Testament Christians in the latter part of the first century, that Jesus Christ, he's the one in control. He is the one that is reigning and ruling at this present hour. Now his throne is in heaven, but nonetheless, he is reigning. And so, first of all, John addresses, as I said a moment ago, the sovereignty of Christ and then the sacrifice of Christ. Note what he says, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What about the basis of this sacrifice? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, John tells us. He said the reason Jesus went to the cross was because of his love for us. Listen again to what John said. Unto him who loved us, God in heaven loves you. God in heaven loves the entire human family. Not only, does, not only does God the Father love you, but Jesus Christ the Son loves you. Here's what Jesus said in John 15 verse 13, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. If you and I were to go back and just take the time to go through the New Testament, we would see that God's redemptive plan was based on his great love for the human family. In Ephesians 2 at verse 4, Paul said, But God who is rich in mercy for the great love 
wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved. So God the Father, yes, God the Father loves us. And yes, Jesus Christ the Son loves us. But note also, if you would, we talk about the basis for this sacrifice, but then the blood that was sacrificed. John said to him who loved us and washed us from our sins, in his own blood, Jesus shed his blood for our salvation. What a great thought. Zechariah, who began writing in about 520 B.C., some 500 years before Jesus made his advent into the world, saw a day in which a fountain would be opened for sin and uncleanness. I believe Zechariah was pointing to the coming of the Christ and the fact that he would shed his blood for our sins. One of the things that we are commanded to do on the first day of the week, one of the things that we do and we treasure doing it is partake of the Lord's Supper. It is, it is a weekly memorial feast. This is Memorial Day weekend. And we reminisce over those fallen soldiers that literally gave their lives on the battlefield. We're grateful for the men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for the freedom that we enjoy in this country. There are many today in harm's way that are willing to literally sacrifice their own physical lives for our freedom. And we're grateful for that. But Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed himself. He paid the ultimate price on Calvary so that we might enjoy freedom from sin. The freedom that we're talking about is spiritual in nature. Sin is the problem, and yet Jesus is the remedy. And so John talks about how Christ washed us from our sins in his own blood. Here's what Paul said in, in Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, or in whom, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter said, You were not redeemed by corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the world began, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, God in heaven decreed in the long ago to send his Son to a sin-cursed earth to die for our sins. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we eat the bread, we remind ourselves of the body of Christ. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Peter said that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the suffering of Christ. He said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus had the sins of the human family heaped upon his head. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of the body given in our stead. We also remind ourselves of the blood that was shed. Jesus said, this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, the Hebrew writer said, there is no remission. Without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you and I would be without hope and without God in this world. 
But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ willingly shed his blood in his death. I would also point out that the importance of the blood of Christ is realized when we are baptized into Jesus Christ because it is that blood that washes away our sins. When we are baptized into Christ, it is at that point in time that we contact the blood that washes away every sin. That's why Saul of Tarsus was instructed by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I said earlier, I've said before, that when we talk about the blood of Christ and the need to appropriate it in our own life, we have to go where it was shed. It was shed in his death. John 19, 34. The only way that you and I can appropriate the blood of Christ is by being baptized into Christ. How are we baptized into Christ? Well, we are baptized in a watery grave of baptism. It is called a burial in water. Colossians 2, verse 12. When that baptism is preceded by faith, repentance, and confession, a person then enjoys all of the benefits benefits and the blessings of the blood that was shed on Calvary for us. So, you and I, we have been purchased by Christ. He has redeemed us. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he talked about those who were, who were outside a covenant relationship with God. He said they are without hope and without God in this world. In verse 13 he said, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off are made nigh or made near by the blood of Christ. That's how significant the blood of Christ is. We have to have it. If we don't have it, then we're lost and hopeless in sin. So, Christ is the one who has purchased us. But there is a second thing that we see in our lesson. Not only have we been purchased by Christ, but we have been positioned in Christ. And the idea here is that we enjoy a unique position in Christ Jesus. We're talking now about the relationship that is afforded us based on the blood of Jesus, based on the fact that He made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Well, what is this relationship? Two things that John speaks of in Revelation chapter 1. First of all, he says that we have been made a part of of the kingdom. Note if you would, he talks about how we are a kingdom of believers. Look if you would at verse 6. He has made us kings, or really it's better translated, he has made us a kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? We know that the kingdom is the body of Christ. It's called the church of Christ. Go all the way back to the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 and you'll read about Daniel interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was the most powerful king of his day. He had a dream that he did not understand and so he called upon Daniel to interpret that dream. Daniel told him about four world empires beginning with his own empire. That is beginning with the Babylonian kingdom or Babylonian empire. And then he proceeded to show him that Babylon would give way to the Medes and the Persians, which later would yield to the Grecian Empire, which in turn would give way to the Roman Empire. So 
In verse 44, Daniel would say, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. What kingdom is he talking about? The very kingdom that John is identifying here in Revelation chapter 1. It is the kingdom of God. It is the church of Christ. Bear in mind that when John the Baptist, John the Immerser, began his work as preparing the hearts and minds of people to receive the Christ, as recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says that John the Baptist began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven, listen to him, is at hand. John realized that the kingdom of God was going to be established. The very same kingdom that Daniel foretold of centuries earlier. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus began his earthly ministry some months later, he too said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, over in Mark chapter 9 at verse 1, Jesus would say to those who were present during his lifetime, Verily I say unto you, there are some here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, there are a lot of people in our world today that misunderstand the kingdom. They have the idea that the kingdom is yet to come. The kingdom's here. It is not a physical kingdom. The Jews misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. They understood the nature of Christ as a king. Christ is the king. We are the kingdom. The kingdom was built or established by Jesus. In Matthew 16, verse 13, the Bible tells us that Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? They said, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked the question, But whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The very next verse, verse 19, Jesus said, And I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The word kingdom in verse 19 and the word church in verse 18 are synonymous. They refer to the same institution. When you look at Scripture, you'll find that many times the word kingdom and church are used interchangeably. So, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build the church. I'm going to establish the kingdom of God. I said a moment ago that there are people today that misunderstand the nature of the kingdom, just like the Jews did in the first century. You remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not something that you and I can geographically rope off. But rather, it is spiritual in nature. And so in Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus said, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within us. It is a spiritual kingdom. Not only is the kingdom of God said to be in us, but if we have been baptized into Christ, we are said to be in the kingdom. In Colossians 1, verse 12, Paul writes, Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. 
who has delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So, when did the kingdom of God begin on Pentecost Day, Acts chapter 2? When the apostles were endowed with the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit, when they preached the gospel on that day and some 3,000 souls yielded obedience to the truth of Almighty God and God added them to the church or to the kingdom. Now listen, if you would, to what John said in verse 9. In verse 9, John said, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. To those who say the kingdom is yet to come, how do you account for the fact that John said he was a member of the kingdom? If the kingdom is yet to come, where are the people that were living during the days of Christ? Because Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there are some of you who stand here who will not taste death till the kingdom of God come with power. If the kingdom did not come, there are some people walking around on planet earth that are about 2,000 years old. And you and I know that's just not possible. The fact of the matter is the kingdom of God is here. And those who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, they are a part of the kingdom of Almighty God. The kingdom over which Jesus serves as king. He is the king, we are the kingdom. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the head, we are the body. That's what the Bible says. And by the way, there's just one body and there's just one head. In Ephesians 4 verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. What is the body? He is the head of the body of the church. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible also says, Let God be true and every man a liar. What Almighty God says concerning the kingdom of God is true, whether people like it or not. It's just the truth of the matter. So, first of all, He has made us a part of the body. But then also He has made us a priesthood of believers. Note if you would what is said in verse 6. He has made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, under the Old Covenant, that is the law of Moses, there was a special priesthood. Levites, as you well know, they were the priestly tribe. God set that tribe apart. He set those people apart to function as priests on His behalf. Read, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. Today, however, those of us who belong to the body of Christ, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we are priests of Almighty God. Each and every one of us are priests in the eyes of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, at verse 5, Peter said that we are a priesthood and that we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he said, you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, whom he has called forth out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What's Peter saying? He's saying that every child of God is a priest. Well, what do priests do? They offer up sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices do we offer up? Spiritual sacrifices. 
It is a sacrifice of the body. In Romans chapter 12 at verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. We are to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. We are to offer our body as a sacrifice to Almighty God. That's one of the reasons we need to keep this body pure and holy. That's why Peter would say, Be ye holy, speaking on behalf of God, even as I am holy. It is also a sacrifice of our hands, Ephesians chapter 4. We are to labor with our hands. That is, we are to do good with our hands. It is a sacrifice of our feet. In Romans 10, verse 15, Paul said, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It is a sacrifice of our ears because, like Samuel of old, we say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Whatever Almighty God says in His Word, we want to obey. It is also a sacrifice of our lips. We offer unto God the fruit of our lips, that is, the sacrifice of praise unto Almighty God. Every time we come together to worship, when we bow in prayer to Jehovah God, when we sing songs of praise unto Him, when we preach and teach His Word, it is a sacrifice of praise to His high and holy name. So, what are we saying? We're saying, number one, we are a part of the body, the kingdom of God. Secondly, we are a priesthood of believers. There's a third thing I want you to see with me in this lesson. We talk about the power of Christ. That's our theme. The third point that I want to put before you in our study today is the promise of Christ. Now, just a moment ago, we talked about how Domitian was on the throne. And Domitian was the Roman emperor. He was a very powerful man. And John identifies Jesus Christ as the ruler over the king's of the earth. What about this ruler? What about his power? Well, in verse 8, here's what the Lord said I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Whatever the Lord says, you and I can take it to the bank. We can believe it, we can trust in it because his word is not going to fail. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God cannot lie. It's impossible for the Lord to lie. So, all of that being said, what about the return of Christ? Did you know that John talks about the visible return of Jesus? A couple of things to think about here. Note if you would verse 7. In verse 7, John said, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. If you had been living in the first century, if you were undergoing a siege of persecution, one of the things that you might want to hear is that Jesus is in control, that he is the King of kings, and that he is the Lord of lords. And also, you would want to know that the Son of God, the one who is vested with all power, will one day come again. He'll come for you. Well, that's what the Lord is saying here. That's what John is saying. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
the very one who pierced the side of Jesus as he hung upon the cross will see the Son of God come in glory one day. When is Jesus coming? Well, Jesus said of that day and hour, knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, verse 36. Peter said he will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works therein will be burned up. So planet earth as you and I know it, the universe, the solar system, everything will be dissolved. It'll be burned up. It'll be destroyed. But Jesus is coming. And in light of his coming, here's something that we need to consider. Those who are rebellious, John said they will mourn at his coming. Listen again. All tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. That word mourn is a very interesting term. What it actually denotes is utter hopelessness. There are a lot of people in our world today that think this whole idea of religion, Christianity, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, that it's just a bunch of nonsense. There are a lot of people today living in our society. There were a lot of people during, during the days of John. They had the idea that, that it didn't matter what, what, what you did in life. They had the idea that they could do as they please. There are a lot of people in our world today that have that same mentality. There are a lot of people that literally shake their finger in the face of God. There are atheists who say there is no God. There are agnostics who say how can we know whether there is or is not a God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. I want you to imagine if you can what it will be like for the unrighteous when Jesus comes. When Jesus Christ comes, here's what we need to understand. He will literally empty out the cemetery, the cemeteries. Every cemetery will be emptied. The Lord said in John 5, verse 28, Marvel not, the hour is coming when all that are in the graves, all, A-L-L, all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. There are going to be a lot of unhappy people when the Lord comes. There are going to be a lot of people that stood their ground on planet earth and said, I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to live for God. I'm not going to, sub I'm not going to submit to His will. I'm not going to obey the gospel of Christ. And they will one day rue that day when they stand before Him. The Lord said, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us must give an account of himself to God. We're all going to stand before Almighty God. Think about alien sinners, individuals who have never named the name of Jesus Christ, who have never been baptized into Christ. When the Son of God comes in all of His glory with His holy angels, when He is seated upon that throne of glory, what do you think the unrighteous will think? The Bible says they will mourn at His coming. 
because they will know the utter hopelessness of their condition. It's too late to obey the gospel. It's too late to be restored. The Lord has come. Alien sinners, apostate saints. And let me just say this. If you're here and you're not a faithful child of God and the Son of Almighty God were to come tonight and you were living in sin, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're going to be in more trouble than you've ever seen in a hundred lifetimes because you'll stand unprepared to meet Almighty God. That's why when we read the Scriptures, and we think about passages like this, we need to take to heart what the Lord's trying to say. So first of all, the rebellious will mourn at His coming, but the righteous will be merry at His coming. In verse 18, Jesus said, I am He who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now listen to him. And I have the keys of Hades and death. The righteous, when Jesus comes, are going home to be with him forevermore. I said earlier that John was writing to New Testament Christians, some of whom had paid the ultimate price they had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held. And John could assure his readers that Jesus Christ has the keys to the cemetery. And one day when he comes again, he's going to open the cemetery doors. And everybody will come forth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible tells us that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Won't that be a great day? The reunion that will occur when Jesus comes again. And think about this. John is saying to these saints, if your loved ones have died in Christ Jesus, you don't have to worry. In chapter 14, verse 13, he said, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. In chapter 21, he said, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he said, In that beautiful land, death will be no more. He said, There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow. He said, pain will be no more, for these former things have passed away. That's why we can rejoice. And that's why the righteous will be merry at the coming of Christ. The power of Christ. In the first century, they needed to know when they placed their loved ones in the cemetery, that was not the end. When we go to the cemetery and we place our loved ones in the heart of the earth, we need to understand that is not the end. Jesus will one day come, the graves will be opened, we'll be ushered into the presence of God, we'll give an account of the deeds done in the body, and then He will assign our eternal destinies. And if we've been found faithful, He'll say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
we've lived unfaithfully, if we've never obeyed the gospel, then as Paul said, we will suffer everlasting destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. What about you? Do you believe in the power of Christ? Are you a part of His body? Are you living as a faithful priest of the Most High God? What an encouragement to know that we serve the risen Savior. That we serve a Lord who loves us, who gave His life for us, and who will one day come for us. If you're here this evening and you've never responded to heaven's invitation, why not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Why not submit to His will, be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. The Lord will add you to His church, Acts 2, verse 47. You'll be a part of the redeemed, the cleansed body of Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 23. And if you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today and maybe you're not what you ought to be, could we pray with you and for you? James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing.